stuff that you and I should not be ignorant of, but it, these are things that should not cause us to lose sleep over, because uh, I'm not planning on being here while this is going on, all right? I'm planning on being with the Lord. Uh, that's what he's already promised us, as we saw in 1 Thessalonians and thus far in 2 Thessalonians. And so we're going to see uh, that while we're going to look at these details of the tribulation, we're not going to cover all the details, because to be honest, that would take about a lifetime. And, and, and as well, uh, our focus in these things, as we look at the judgments that's going to be taking place in the first and second half of the tribulation period, what's leading up to it, what's coming out of it, our focus is not the Antichrist. We must remember that the focus is Christ alone. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we'll pick up here with the tribulation period. Now, we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth on the, in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Here we find uh, events that are essentially uh, leading up uh, in those four, uh, those four verses, leading up to uh, the, the halfway point of the tribulation period, which we'll look at that in just a moment. So as we go through here, uh, just to sort of give a brief summary of the tribulation period, gotquestions.org does a really good job at giving a, a brief summary of it. Um, they're a good, easy, free resource online that, that you pretty much type in whatever Bible question you've got. And they've pretty much got a pretty good answer. Uh, it's uh, gotquestions.org right there uh, uh, on the quote, gotquestions.org. But they've got, it sounds really generic. Trust me. The first time I used it, I was like, I don't know about this thing. Uh, but the more I've used it and, and read a lot, they've got a, uh, they offer really good uh, uh, conservative takes on things. They offer a lot of scripture. And then as well for things that are sort of uh, some gray area issues or things like that. Uh, what they'll do is they sort of do like, we, like we've done thus far, give the different uh, variations of opinions and thoughts on it, and, and then sort of leave it up to the reader to go, here's what the scripture says, you've got to make your decision. So I do appreciate that about them. But nevertheless, uh, here's what they uh, sort of summarize the tribulation period about. They say a period of seven years, and we believe it as we've already talked about, a literal seven years in which God's judgment is poured out on sinful humanity, Revelation chapter 6 through 16. The Antichrist rise to powers associated with this time period during the tribulation on earth. The church will be in heaven. Uh, it is thought that at this time the judgment seat of Christ and the marriage supper of the Lamb will occur in heaven. Uh, and so they have that as their opinion. Uh, I believe that it is possible as well that the marriage uh, supper of the Lamb will be taking place uh, at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. But nevertheless, uh, you can split hairs all you want about much details. There is still yet a great mystery. Uh, here's what has been revealed to us about this mystery. You and I one day will be changed. We shall be caught up together. We shall meet the Lord in the air. Uh, we shall be delivered from this corruptible body and this corrupted world. And we shall put on incorruption and immortality. And it'll, be, uh, it'll happen in the moment of the twinkling of an eye. And so we're looking forward to that. That is no longer a mystery. We, we have seen that mystery. Uh, we are awaiting and longing for that day. Uh, so as we look here, uh, we see that during the literal seven-year tribulation period, there will be a series of judgments as described in Revelation 6 through 19 called the seal trumpet and vile or bold judgments. You'll often hear myself or other, other preachers and teachers call them the bold judgments because the idea of a vial is that of a, a bowl being poured out. Uh, you could think of it almost sort of like a mixing bowl, if you will, or being poured out, but the idea is that these were kept um, and uh, then poured out. And so now these judgments we're going to see as we uh, have understood already, as we look at our timeline of events, thus far we, we've covered several things. We've We've covered um, the, the fact that there is going to be uh, the, a pre-tribulational rapture as we hold to, uh, as well as during this time, there is going to be a great deal of war 
and, and chaos and things, not necessarily because of the rapture, but after the fact, there's going to be a great deal of armies that begin to rise. There will be nations against nations, and, and, and there will be much upheaval of all of society throughout the world. I believe that what's going to take place, as we see throughout the Bible, it talks about um, a great deal of bloodshed and wars and things leading up to the tribulation period and then during the tribulation period as well. And with all this, as we see all these wars, uh, you and I tend to do this. And, and, and I want to go ahead and stop us here before we go any further. As we look at the tribulation period, we often get, uh, at least myself, I get the most questions about the current events of the day and asking if this is the tribulation or if this is a part of it or this is leading up to it, all these different things. Here's the key that we've got to understand. The Bible reveals a lot about what's going to be taking place during that day leading up to it, in it, halfway through it, and then uh, coming out of it, right, on the backside of it. But as well, we must understand and remember that we do not interpret Bible prophecy based upon news headlines on CNN, Fox News, or the newspaper, all right? But we must be careful to not read into every news article some sort of end times event we understand this, bare minimum, that everything is going to get worse and worse. So just because we see bad news on the, on the news, which we're going to, right, does not mean that it is necessarily the next thing, all right? What is the next thing? Well, we talked about this. The next thing for you and I that we're waiting is the rapture. We're not waiting for the tribulation period. I'm not waiting for it at all. I'm not looking for it. I'm not longing for it. We're going to be out of it. And now with all this being understood, as we see here, the, the bare minimum here, and let me sort of paint a picture of the tribulation period sort of a skeleton of it, if you will, of sort of basic timeline of it. Rapture takes place, all right? Dead in Christ shall rise first, First Thessalonians chapter 4. Those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught together in the Lord, so shall we be. Comfort one another with those words, right? That's our hope. That's our blessed hope. That is, the, uh, that is the day that Christ will call his church home to be with him. Now, that does not begin the tribulation period, as we talked about. What begins the tribulation period? This will be uh, the beginning of the tribulation period will be when the Antichrist, along with his uh, band of, of league and of nations, uh, will make a treaty with Israel. And they will do so, and that will begin the, uh, the tribulation period. Now, during that first half, if you will, the first three and a half years, there appears, uh, appears to be uh, what we often refer to as the sort of false peace. Now, why is there a peace treaty? Well, in order to get a peace treaty, there probably has to be war before it, doesn't it? certainly would make sense. And so I believe that before, between the rapture, uh, or even probably, possibly even before, but nevertheless, um, after the rapture and in between that day of the, the peace treaty being signed uh, that, that establishes and begins the tribulation period, there's going to take place a great war that's going to be coming against Israel. Uh, God will uh, defend his people there. Uh, he will do so to show his wrath against the, the pagan nations who have come against him. But as well, we must remember that the tribulation period is for several key things. Uh, so in the understanding of the purpose of the tribulation period, it is, yes, for judgment against the lost, the unbelievers, those who, as we have seen already in chapter 1, who do not know God and have obeyed not the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse number... Uh, da, 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 verse number... Let's see, where did I see it? I just read it here. Eight? No. That's, yeah, yeah. Chapter 1, verse number 8. And flaming fire, vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those that have rejected the, the Lord, they, uh, judgment will be given uh, and poured out in those days. Uh, there's going to be much destruction just for sake of time. We won't get into it today, but you can go and you can read Revelation chapter 6 through 19, and you're going to see the progression of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. And there is a great deal of loss in total throughout the tribulation period from start to finish. Probably about half the population of the world is going to be killed. 
uh, about a third, uh, at least a third of all sea life destroyed. Now imagine this, right? As well, much of the water, the, the fresh water of the earth is going to be made bitter. Much of it's going to be turned to blood. There's going to be such an immense amount of bloodshed and, and turmoil and chaos and, and, and war that's going to be taking place during that time, much of which is going to be led and centered around uh, Israel, the surrounding nations, and the regime of the Antichrist, which will be a worldwide dominance. He will do like most do today. You've ever heard of a, a peacekeeping mission, right? Uh, UN peacekeeping, right? Uh, there, uh, we think, uh, has there ever been a UN peacekeeping mission in a war-torn country where they did not go ready to fight? They always go ready to fight. Why? Because unfortunately, that's a part of the peacekeeping. That's what's going to be taking place with the Antichrist regime. So though there is peace promised, it will come at a terrible cost and price. It will come at great bloodshed and war, but it will be justified by them and many will flock and the world itself will turn to him for the answers and things. This will take place at the beginning because if anyone can bring peace in the Middle East and with such wars that are going to take place, certainly folks are going to follow. Now, as this takes place in the tribulation period, yes, judgment is being poured out, but this is also for the purification of Israel. This is to bring them in a preparation to receive their true king, to receive the Lord Jesus Christ whom they had rejected long ago. So the tribulation period is to set up for what? The second coming, which is where the, they will be uh, uh, born in a day, which we'll get into that in a moment. Israel will turn and they will see Christ, their Messiah, and they will see him as Messiah. And so there will be the greatest revival that has ever taken place. We'll deal with that here in a moment. So the, the, the purpose behind it is not merely for God to simply uh, look down and, and rain down fire and brimstone all willy-nilly. It is for the purpose of purifying the world of sin, reproving the world of sin, and as well purifying and preparing Israel to receive Christ. It will be to, to bring about the redemption of national Israel, and as well, it prepares for future eternity. Now, halfway through this point uh, of the tribulation period, what will be taking place from the start of it to the middle of it, Israel will be at peace with the surrounding nations during that time. And what's going to take place for them is they're going to reinstitute temple worship, uh, by the way, and this is where many folks do get very concerned as they read uh, Bible prophecy or, or, or um, different blogs and things that keep up with a lot of this stuff. And I, and I don't discourage it. I, I read much of it myself. Uh, but here's, here's what's going to be taking place. Uh, they're going to rebuild the temple. And in so doing, what they're going to do is they're going to reinstitute uh, temple worship, sacrificial worship. Now, we've got to understand this as well. You say, well, they're not even close to getting there. And I would, I would probably agree with you. But we do have to remember that right now in Israel, the Sanhedrin do meet. Uh, they are not necessarily a ruling party, but they are in the process of setting things up. They have also gone through over the past several decades and have gone through the lineages and have uh, found Levites and are training them up in the way of the priesthood once more. They have already made um, the, the, uh, all of the, the tools of, of, that are going to go into the temple, all the different pieces that are, that are required in Scripture that was seen in Tabernacle in the temple. Uh, they have done them to the specs that are needed. They are kept... Uh, sort of locked away behind lock and key because right now uh, they have very little access to their own homeland uh, as they have still yet been uh, trying to seek peace with the uh, militant uh, Islam that is in the nation that will not, will not accept peace. Right? The only way that they'll accept peace is if Israel does not exist. Now, we know that that's not going to take place. As a matter of fact, God's going to put them down. Now, with all of this, all these pieces are, are being put together right now. They are preparing for that day. 
they are preparing for the day that they can return back to a national Israel where they will worship in, uh, the, the Lord and that they will sacrifice in the temple. Remember, what was the temple for? The temple was to be the dwelling place of God. It was to be the place where God met with His people, where sacrifice and worship was offered, where atonement was, was seen. But you and I know this. Every act of sacrifice that those Jewish people will commit in those days will be absolutely worthless. And you, you see this, that Jesus Christ, His sacrifice alone, is able to atone for sin. There is no other blood that is sufficient. We can read that in Hebrews chapter 9 and chapter 10. We see that it is by Jesus Christ alone. And so once they establish this, here's what's going to happen. This false peace is going to come into the halfway point. And on that halfway point, as we've read here in, in 2 Thess uh, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, which we'll get into it, but we see what is noted here in your booklet, the abomination of desolation. This will occur halfway through the tribulation period. It is seen as well in Daniel and things. Um, but it is described here as that the Antichrist will forfeit the covenant with Israel. He will sit in the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, announcing himself to be God. Immense persecution against believers, specifically the Jewish people, will then commence. So that false peace will have lulled many to sleep. And that's the idea of it. That's what's happening right now, by the way. That's much of what the falling away is. It is a putting to sleep, a putting a blinder on the eyes of those who do not see, who have not heard or obeyed the gospel. And so this is why the world does what it does. We should not be surprised that lost people do what they do. Lost people do what lost people do. Therefore, saved people ought to do what saved people ought to do. Now, it is their nature. So we have to, have, to, have to quit with the whole uh, hating the world because of their sin. We have to understand they don't know any better, but right now because of this time, they have blinded eyes, blinders over their eyes, scales on their eyes, and, and, and they must be delivered. But uh, with all of this, the Antichrist is going to do such, and it is called the abomination of desolation because it is the uh, absolute epitome of blasphemy, idolatry. He will set himself up as God. He will declare himself to be God. And we have to remember, too, the Antichrist is going to be given power uh, from Satan, and then that second half of the tribulation period will be, uh, Satan will enter into him. And what we see is he's going to be able to do many things that are going to ooh, make people ooh and ah, and he will woo the nations and woo the hearts and minds of the people. Now, here's what people often worry about. People worry and ask about the mark of the beast. All right, the mark of the beast is talking about uh, in the book of Revelation, uh, and it will be placed in the forehead, right, or, or in the hand. Now, here's, here's what folks get worried about. I'll go ahead and say this, right? Y'all remember when COVID first kicked off? Y'all remember about three months into it, they started saying, hey, we got shots for you, right? First questions I ever got was, is that the mark of the beast? And I said, look, it's not. Now, if you don't want to take it, don't. If you do, do. I don't care, nor do I think the Lord does. When we look at this, the Antichrist is going to institute this, and you say, well, is this going to be a microchip? That's the thing that often people uh, assume or wonder or worry about. But we don't find microchips in the Bible, do we? And I believe if we were going to do that, we're going to be reading in the Scripture. It says a mark in the forehead. Well, let's understand this. What is the importance of the forehead? Well, what's behind your forehead? Your brain, that's right. Way to go, you guys. Y'all get an A-plus for the day. You get, you've got your brain behind it. Now, what does your brain do? It thinks. It tries to think. Right? It, 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 it does the best it can do, right? But without that brain, you've got nothing. You take away the brain, you take away everything, right? Your body will not function without it, right? Now, what's the important part? In your brain, you think. You as well understand emotion, intellect, logic. You make decisions based upon uh, rationality and the things that have been revealed to you as well, uh, whether in creation, 
uh, whether through education or even through the Lord himself, right, through his word. But we have to understand that the mark of the beast does not necessarily have to be a microchip. I believe that it is a false assumption to have to do that. Let's think about this today. Y'all ever heard of Ash Wednesday? All right. Who practices that? Catholic Church. Uh, matter of fact, I believe it's coming up in early March, I think, or February. Um, but they do so, and they go, they go through their little drive-through. They get ash on their forehead, signifying their, their purification and all these things. All right, well, that's one group. How many Catholics are there in, in the world today? Roughly over a billion. That's a ton. That's about an eighth of the population. All right, how about uh, Muslims? Do you know what they do with their foreheads? Every day when they pray, when they pray, of course, if, if, if they're a good Muslim, according to their, their beliefs, they're going to pray every day towards Mecca five times a day. Now, what do they do? Do they pray like you and I or like me walking around or uh, on one knee or perhaps sitting still with hands full? No. They get on their face, and what happen, has, has to happen for them is their forehead has to touch the earth. That's important. How about this? How about the Hindus and the Buddhists? You ever seen a Hindu or a Buddhist? What do they have in their forehead? They often put either a, 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 a mark of, of some sort of uh, spice, right, that, that turns into a dye on their forehead, perhaps something like cumin, uh, coriander, different things that there's ground up that they put there. And then what else? They also see jewels. A forehead is absolutely critical. How about this? You ever seen someone hold up a pyramid, right, all-seeing eye? and paganism that's used, right, as we've talked about in Genesis, mystery religion. Well, what do they often put it up? You can see it. Matter of fact, it took place during the Super Bowl halftime show last year. What is this? The all-seeing eye, the forehead. It's called in other parts of, uh, in, in pagan traditions, the third eye. Now, how many eyeballs y'all got? Two, all right? Now, that's good. Now, that's good. If you got three, we'd kind of look at you funny, wouldn't we? Right? I don't know anybody that's got three eyeballs. I know somebody, I've, I've known a few people that got one eyeball. I've known a few folks that got just glass eyes. And they let me hold them. That was kind of fun, right? Now, it's a different story for a different day. But that third eye is the understanding of, uh, of what Gnosticism is. It is a higher knowledge. It is a deeper knowledge. But it is a wicked and demonic knowledge that does not come from the Lord. And so as we see, the world does not need a microchip to take the mark of the beast. They're already working on it. They're already doing it. So we don't have to read into technology today and say, well, that has to be necessarily used in that day. It doesn't. We see that today's modern religions and the world religions of the day overwhelmingly uh, put things on their foreheads in an act of worship and adoration and, and identifying with something beyond themselves, and they will do the same with the Antichrist. All right. So with all this, he sits down, he proclaims himself to be God. Folks will follow. There will be Jews and the faithful ones, those who trust the Lord, uh, as described, I believe, in Matthew 24, 25. They're going to flee to the mountains. This is why Jesus says, Woe to you that give suck in those days. What days? The days after the abomination of desolation, because then the Antichrist will turn against the Jewish people. Peace will be ended, and he will seek to hunt them down and slaughter as many believers, Jew or Christian, as possible. Now, in all this, gets worse and worse and worse. Now, you and I would think as the world sees the judgment of Christ coming upon them that they would repent and believe. The Bible actually tells quite the opposite. Over in Revelation and other portions as well, it describes that they gnash at him with their teeth. 
They reject him. They know that it is the lamb. They see that the judgment is coming from the lamb, and they curse the lamb. That doesn't sound like belief. It doesn't sound like revival. It sounds like what we're seeing today, a falling away leading to people who in their hearts do not know God, therefore they hate God. They do not love him, and they will not love him on that day. It is the goodness of God that leadeth men to repentance. His judgment is not going to bring any of them to himself. It will be a hot and a fiery and a terrible judgment that they will face. There's other portions and parts of the tribulation that we just can't get into today uh, just for sake of time and things, but there's a great deal of details as well that are there as you look at progression of the seals, trumpet, bowls, judgment, each one that will take place. But the great thing about the tribulation period, and it is just one period. It is one literal seven-year period, and what happens after that? What we call the second coming of Christ. This is where you and I, those of us who are in Christ, the bride, if you will, of Christ, will come riding white horses with the Lord. Uh, Revelation chapter 19, He will have on His thigh written a name that is King of kings, Lord of lords. He will have uh, uh, His vesture dipped with blood. He will come to reign. He will slaughter many armies. There will be a great feast for the birds and the fowls of the air. Can you imagine seven years of dead bodies, dead fishes, and dead animals all throughout the world? It's a terrible smell. A terrible notion to think about. Nearly half the world, or if not more than half the world's population, gone. Four billion, right? Gone. Now you think, well, how can that many die in such a short period of time? We forget that in many wars, uh, you look at World War I and World War II, there were at least four or five uh, battles that you can look at where a million plus people died over the span of a battle of a few months. And so it is very, very possible, especially when there's hellfire brimstone being rained down from the Lord for such bloodshed and nations rising against nations. Now the second coming of Christ, as Ryrie puts it, it is at the climax of the campaign of Armageddon, the Lord will return to this earth. Everyone's gathering around Jerusalem, and what's, what, what does he do? He returns to reign, as his return is described in Zechariah chapter 14 and Revelation 19. It is referred to in many other passages, but these two give the most detailed description of it. And as he comes back, we've got to remember, we are coming with him. The rapture calls us up and out of here. The uh, tribulation will uh, purify and prepare people to have Christ return. We will come back with him and we will rule and reign with him. That will be much of what our reward is. Much of the motivation of the believer is uh, not necessarily for what's going to take place if I drop dead right now and went to heaven. It is for the kingdom period. It is for how we will use what God has given to us in a glorified state to be used. For him, we will rule over the nations and the kings of the earth. Uh, we will see that it will be uh, rebuilt and refurbished, uh, and that it will be renewed uh, for a thousand years. The saints of God will return with him and he, uh, when he comes to judge and establish his kingdom. Rebellious armies will be put down. Israel will repent and trust Christ being born in a day, Isaiah chapter 66 for that. Satan will be bound for a thousand years as Christ initiates what is called the millennial kingdom where the saved will rule and reign with Christ over the nations. Now, there is much detail throughout the, the, uh, the um, major and minor prophets of the Old Testament as well uh, as uh, some details given in the New Testament about what will take place during the Millennial Kingdom. But I believe that you and I will be uh, given jobs, roles, responsibilities uh, based upon the talents that we use for the Lord, if you will, in this world that He gave to us and uh, to those who have uh, lived by faith 
uh, we shall receive great reward and we will be able to rule and reign with him over the nations and the tribes and the people. And we will see that during that time of the millennial kingdom, what else is going to take place? That, uh, that Satan, the Antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, are going to be thrown into uh, a, a, uh, to a bottomless pit. There's going to be uh, locked up for that thousand years. But then you say, well, what happens after that? Well, the Bible describes that they're going to be let loose for a little season. Christ will put down his enemies. And what's going to take place? There will be the final judgment, the great white throne judgment for, for all those who have not believed the gospel, all those who have rejected God at his word. And then what will take place? We have the eternal state. This is the new heavens and the new earth. The eternal kingdom of God will come in after one final battle and after the final judgments of unbelievers, including Satan and his cohort, as God brings about a new heavens and a new earth where God and his people will dwell together throughout eternity with a final removal of the curse. See Revelation 20 and 22 for that. That gives much of the great details of that. There are some uh, details as well, as you can see in cross-references in Revelation 21 uh, and 22. You can see um, pointing back to Isaiah and Ezekiel and some different places as well uh, that give us some clues about what that day will look like. But that will be what we call the eternal kingdom. We see then that the flow from Genesis to Revelation is the same, and the flow from Revelation to Genesis essentially in many ways is the same. We find that, that the, there is a creation, there is a fall, there is a, a, a promise of redemption, there is redemption and covenants, and, and God ultimately brings about all these things to the, to the glory and honor of the name of Christ and for the protection and provision by His grace for His people who have believed upon Him. And now, many of the details remain a mystery, but much that has been revealed to us about each of these states now, each of these times will be seen in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and will be, pe- uh, will be piece by piece examined so that we may understand more clearly what God has revealed. Now, with all that, let's get into verses 1 and 2. So, that only took two weeks to cover the introduction. That's not that bad, right? <laughs> all you guys are prophecy experts now, right? <laughs> Me either. Now, verse 1 and 2 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This begins to describe some of these things. He says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. As the Bible Knowledge Commentary writes, this section of verses contains truths found nowhere else in the Bible. It is key to understanding future events and it is central to this epistle. Paul dealt with a doctrinal error concerning eschatology, the last things that had crept into the Thessalonian church. In chapter 2, he spoke on the theological error. And in chapter 3, two practical problems in the church that grew out of that error. Uh, as Green writes, the, apostles, uh, the apostle introduces the first section of the body of the letter by exhorting, in verses 1 and 2, the Thessalonians not to become easily unsettled or alarmed over a false teaching that had infiltrated the community and proclaimed that the day of the Lord has already come. We must remember this. Doctrine is for our conviction and comfort, not for confusion. It is to convict us and to comfort us as we believe it, but it is never to confuse us. Now, you might not fully, and myself included, though we do not understand to an infinite or full degree the fullness of every doctrine of the Bible, yet we see that all of them are in fullness found in the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this finite world, still yet in our sin-cursed bodies, we are unable to come to a full knowledge of these things. But one day we will. One day we shall see Him and behold Him. And we shall, uh, we shall know things that we did not know nor could not know 
And I believe that every question that you and I have ever thought we're going to ask the Lord on that day, it will not matter, nor will it be asked, because we won't have to. And frankly, it won't matter, because we will see Him. Now, we must understand that a doctrine that is like this here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with the end times, as difficult as it oftentimes is to understand all that's taking place and all these different opinions, all these different thoughts and ideas, we must not come to a place where we settle to be confused or we uh, just simply say, well, it's just confusing. I can't ever understand it, so therefore I'm just not going to try. Rather, we need to get to the place where we believe the Bible uh, as the Bible is preached, taught, read, studied, understood, and the plain sense, and we find that it becomes our comfort, it becomes our hope. So studying the end times for the Christian should not unsettle the Christian or make the Christian scared, concerned about the future, or worried about what's going to come, or worried about Mark of the, of the beast, or even the abomination of desolation, or any of those things. We should be comforted. Why? Because he tells us just a page ago, back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, wherefore comfort one another with these words. What words? That those who are dead in Christ will be raised to life, and those who are alive and remain shall be caught up together before any of these things take place in the tribulation period. So therefore, you can worry about the details. I'm going to look for Christ. I'm going to wait for Him, and as we wait, we're going to work. We're going to see that we live by faith, and uh, we shall see our reward and our rewarder. Now, confusion about doctrine leads to a lack of comfort. Wouldn't you agree? The more confused you are about a doctrine, the, the less comforted you are by it. Now, uh, as we see here in verse number 2, I wanted to point out for just a moment here, it appears that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2, is implying that either a counterfeit letter had already arrived or perhaps could arrive, claiming to be Paul, teaching that the day of the Lord had already come to pass. So during this time, it appears what is taking place is that Paul is saying, look, do not be troubled in mind, heart, spirit. What does he say? He says, don't be soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, meaning that it appears that someone was writing letters to the churches. Uh, perhaps it could have been the Judaizers or perhaps some folks who had gotten off into to, uh, la-la land with their theology and had begun to believe and, and divide the word by their own uh, preferences and thoughts and opinions and they got a real bad case of the I-thinks and the I-feels uh, or the I-herds and they start writing letters and they start saying, well, this is coming from Paul and, and the day of Christ has already happened. We're already in the tribulation period and now the believers... And there in Thessalonica are getting concerned, and he says, I'm telling you this, and I'm reminding you of the truth that I've already taught you so that you would not be shaken or troubled in your mind or your heart, and that you would not just believe any old thing that comes along. As a matter of fact, we're told in First, uh, first John, I believe, uh, that we are to try the spirits, uh, that we are to try the spirits to see if they are of him, that we are to uh, address the teachings that we hear, that are taught, that are preached, that are proclaimed, whether here whether on TV or radio, and we are to make sure that they line up with the Word of God. And so this is why. It is a good thing for you to read and to listen to many things and to glean some stuff. But at the end of the day, all that matters is that it must line up with the Word of God. If it does not line up with the Word of God, it is false teaching, and it should be marked and avoided. And now we must understand as well that we must be gracious because only the Lord knows those that are His. Only the Lord knows those uh, and the Lord is the one who will reward those who live and walk by faith and preach faithfully uh, and preach the true gospel. And he is as well the one who will judge those that do not. It is not my job nor responsibility to do so. Uh, now, false doctrine is eager to promote uh, this sense of, of confusion. It is easy to promote in general. It's easier to teach false doctrine than it is 
biblical true doctrine. People like false doctrine. They don't know it's false, but they know they like it. It feels good, it tastes better, but it is not good for your heart. Though it might taste good in your lips, it will be sour in your belly. And we find that true doctrine, though at times it is meat and potatoes, though sometimes you might think it's bland, there is nothing more flavorful or wonderful than the bread of life found in the Word of God. Uh, As we see that false doctrine is always self-promoting, it is self-serving, it is self-centered, it is man-centered, it is not focused on God, His Word, nor the glory of God, or the focus of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's easy to tell false teachers and false doctrines based upon a couple of things. One, do they lift up the Holy Spirit more than they do Christ? Uh, Do they focus on emotionalism and experience more so than Bible doctrine and the Word of God and the sufficiency and and inspiration of Scripture? Uh, Are they uh, quick to run to signs and wonders and and not accept the the truth of the revelation of God's revealed Word? These are easy telltale signs. How about this? Do they talk more so about themselves, making them the center of the passage, more so than preaching Christ and making Christ the focus? There's the differences, and that is where they lie. Sorensen writes, Having completed his initial goal of encouraging his beleaguered brethren, the apostle now shifts to addressing apparent confusion in them that had to do with conclusion of some that the day of Christ was already upon them. He thus introduces this next section requested of them that they be not soon shaken in mind or troubled. The word translated as beseech has a sense of a request or asking, even that of one of of desperation. And this request uh, on his behalf was in light of and because of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together in him. In other words, because the coming of the Lord and our gathering unto him, Paul urged them not to be soon shaken or troubled in mind. The gathering together unto him very likely refers to the rapture described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as we will cover a little bit more in depth. But what we find here is this. As all of these things that we have studied the past two weeks, as difficult as they might be to try to wrap into our brains and put in a nice, neat little box with a bow on top, We must understand that the Scripture is true and everything else would be found untrue if it does not line up with the Word of God and that you and I are not to live in a state of confusion, but you and I are to live in a state of comfort as we await the coming of Christ and the calling away of the saints. And so because of that, may we not be soon shaken. May we not be so focused upon details and mysteries and signs and wonders and terrible things that are to come. May we focus upon the most wonderful thing that will ever happen, that is Christ will call His bride home to be with Him, and she will be made pure and white and shall rule and reign with Him when they return with Him after that great and terrible day of tribulation. So, with all that, let us pray, and we'll get into more of these details next week. Father, we love You. We thank You for Your Word. We're grateful, Lord, to study these things. We pray that You would open up our eyes to trust You, to long and to look forward to that day. Lord, and while we wait, Lord, may we be uh, working and living by faith, Lord, uh, for your honor, for your glory, and not for ourselves. And Lord, we pray that this morning that we would focus upon Christ, that we would sing his praises, that we lift up the name of Jesus, and Lord, that you would draw souls to salvation, that you would bring about conviction of, of sin, and as well that you would bring each one of us in a place of comfort as we trust your word. We love you, and we thank you for this time. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.